Today's episode of the Plants Are People 2 podcast is brought to you by the Golfers Gotta Go Anarchist Group. Golf courses are the scourge, dragon scab on the face of our landscape and needs to be destroyed. Join us every Thursday for a dumpster potluck and a midnight creepy crawl to the local golf course for a night of restoration work. Biob, bring your own, seed, bombs, and chad disguise. If you want to send a donation don't. Get your rifle sighted in. Oh, I need to rig up a bench rest. Well, an ironing board makes a good bench rest. No disrespect. Uh, I'm surprised you know what a bench rest is. Charles knows what everything is. Got a question to ask him. Charles knows everything. Take a mighty accomplished man to claim that. I didn't claim it. I don't claim anything. Can you ask him? You see if I'm wrong. Bet you can stump him. Oh, bet you I can. I tell you what, I will give you five dollars. You can tell me what's on the other side of this blade. It's a rabbit smoking a pipe. Hmm. <laughs> a rabbit smoking a pipe. Why in the world would that be, Charles? Uh, well, it's a symbol of the uh, Cree Indians. On one side is the panther, on the other, his prey, uh, the rabbit. 
he sits unafraid, he smokes his pipe. It's a traditional motif. Why is he unafraid? Because he's smarter than the panther. Huh. Sir, you impress me. Oh, thank you. Amazing accomplishment. No, it's not a, an accomplishment. It's a freak. Is that so? Thanks for joining us this Sunday. This is the Plants Are People 2 podcast, episode 30. Um, super excited to have you with us. We have Dr. Teresa Crimmins from the National Phenology Network to talk to us today a little bit about, a little bit about phenology um, and how we can get involved as citizen scientists to help um, facilitate some of these studies that are happening across the globe. So I hope you enjoy, and um, we'll see you next week. Hello? Hey, Teresa. Hi. How you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. Good. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, speak with me on the phone. And I imagine you're okay. a, a plant person. I am a plant person. <laughs> yeah. I really like plants. Yeah. So I think my love for plants originated as a young person. Um, my I grew up in Michigan, so definitely lots of leafy green things there. And I was fortunate enough to be part of a family that camped pretty regularly. And we went on quite a few trips kind of all over the U.S. toting a um, pop-up camper around. And I definitely really fell in love with being in the outdoors, really kind of started to appreciate the, you know, kind of just the national, natural wonders, national parks. And then, and so um, when I went to college, it was a fairly easy decision for me to, um, for, I, I was first drawn to biology. And then it was really in my first semester where you are faced with dissecting things and it was a very clear, it was a very clear no for me of like, I'm opting for plants over animals. And so it kind of evolved from there. Um, I had as an undergraduate, I worked for the Michigan Department of Natural Resources for a couple of summers. And that was a cool experience. Definitely enjoyed being outside all summer long, driving tractors and running chainsaws and that kind of thing. Um, and and then um, ended up progressing into graduate school, mainly because <laughs> I wanted to set myself apart from all the other graduates. I wasn't really sure how to get a cool job being outside and started asking people and they recommended some, some technical skills that I pick up. Um, and that kind of evolved into graduate school, um, which then brought me out to Arizona. I'm in Tucson, Arizona. I attended the University of Arizona for my my PhD. And then it just, you know, it's so much a function of being in the right place at the right time. Um, yeah. I had been working with the National Park Service and serendipitously met a local person um, who ended up pulling me aside after a meeting saying, hey, so you mentioned phonology in the presentation you gave, and I have some phonology data. This was prior to the NPN even existing. Um, but he said, I have some I have some data and nobody's ever really expressed very much interest in it. But, you know, I'll just tell you, I I hiked the same trail. He's been hiking this five mile one way 
trail in the mountains north of town um, that since uh, pretty much on a weekly basis since 1984. And in every segment of trail, he's kept track of every single plant that he's seen in bloom. And so it was when I met him, his database was hundreds of thousands of observations of when different species of plants were in bloom. And I was really excited <laughs> because um, I always like seeing what kind of patterns you can find in a data set. And so I was super fortunate enough to work with him and some others to uh, establish some, some patterns and see how document, be able to document um, how the timing of different plants and their flowering times has changed in the last couple of decades here in these mountains. Um, and even document too that some of the plants have shifted their ranges upslope in response to warmer temperatures. So that's really what kind of drew me into phenology research in particular. And then it was another very serendipitous um, situation that the some individuals within the federal government in, in the early 2000s recognized the need for keeping track of phenology in a structured way on a continental scale and opted to establish a, an organization to do that very thing. And it happened to be that it was based in the building where my office was already situated. And oh, wow. so I just started hanging around them and <laughs> expressing my desire for being involved and sharing that I had some research experience along those lines. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. Wow. Um, how long has the, the National Phenology Network existed? The network was formally established in 2007, and that was after many individuals had put a lot of effort into raising awareness of the topic and the importance of, of, of it, um, and then pulling together some funds to support it. Um, but the, the first executive director was hired in 2007. That's really how we kind of count um, when, it, when it was officially begun. And how long, how old is, you know, the study of phenology, I guess we should say what, <clears throat> we should define phenology. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so formally phenology refers to when things occur, when seasonal um, events in plants and animals occur, um, and also why, why the timing varies, and, and, and really that has a lot to do with local environmental conditions. Um, it, plants in particular, but animals too, really respond to local temperatures and moisture condition, um, sun angle, and some other variables too. And that has a lot of um, governance over when things like leaf out or flowering or fruit ripening occur, or when migration occurs or egg hatch. Um, and so that's what we're keeping track of. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the phenology idea of actually looking at these changes you know, and then applying it to climate change or actually maybe just looking at those changes in general and recording them. How old is that practice? Well, in truth, um, I think folks have been keeping track of this kind of information for as long as humans have been around, um, especially prior to, um, you know, when we started to settle down and, and grow crops. Uh, it was very important for um, our very survival for being able to understand where food sources may be found, either migratory, when, when migratory fish might be available for, um, for catching or when different species of fruit might be ripe um, and available as a food resource. 
uh, for sure, um, Native American populations have been utilizing this for millennia. And then even after we, you know, started to settle down and, and, and plant crops, it continues to be, continued to be really an important um, study because, again, it, it has, there's, <laughs> the local conditions totally govern when you're, when you should plant and then, and then all of the subsequent timing of activities over the, the course of the growing season that ultimately results in when you may harvest a crop too. So, um, so <laughs> we have formal records it, taking many forms going back definitely hundreds of years, but in some cases even even thousands of years when we when we can find um, you know some of those those really historical um, artifacts. Sometimes there's there's even what appear to be documentation of of when different events were occurring. So either subconsciously or consciously, you know, we've been sort of taking this information into account for a really long time. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, with the formation of the NPN or the formal formation of the NPN in 2007, um, you really started, you know, getting more information from the public through citizen science. Um, yeah. Information. Yeah. So what the what the establishment of the National Phenology Network did was provide a way to collect, store, and then share back, share out freely um, information on when different seasonal events are occurring in a structured way, in a, um, a standardized way. And so what one of the first first things that we did was develop um, standardized protocols for documenting the different what we call phenophases in plants and animals. And so in the case of plants, generally what that equates to is information about the leaf, flower, or fruit status. And then for animals, it's a little more varied because um, all, the, all animals do different things, uh, but it usually has to do with first off whether they're present at a particular location on a given date. Um, and then subsequently what activities they may be undertaking, like mating or rearing young or um, undergoing different molts or um, developmental stages or even if they're dead. Um, mm. And so how, how, this, how this works specifically is if you're making observations, you, every time you go to make an observation, um, in the case of plants, folks make repeated observations on the same individuals, and so that helps us build a time series of what's happening over the course of the season and then ideally over multiple years. And each time you're making an observation, you're reporting on the status of, of leaves, flowers, and fruits. So the, the protocols are actually just yes or no questions. Do you see open flowers? Yes or no. Do you see fruits? Yes or no. Do you see ripe fruits? Those kinds of things. Um, and then we also ask about, if you say yes, how many, how many flowers are on that tree or how many fruits are ripe? Um, and then in the case of animals, it's, it's, it's also yes or no. Do you see, do you see species X? Yes or no. If you do, do you see it mating? Do you see it with young? Do you see it as an adult? Um, and once we establish those protocols, those, those standardized protocols so that everybody's collecting data in the same way, we then um, built that into a program that we call Nature's Notebook that, uh, encourages folks of just about any age or skill level in being able to make and contribute those observations to a, a, a database that we manage centrally 
and then those data can be accessed um, through a number of mechanisms, but but freely and readily by anybody. So you can search and find, you know, flowering times for certain plants. Yeah, so exactly. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can access those data through our website. If you're a more sophisticated user, you can connect directly to the to the database and, and kind of query and pull whatever you want in the way that you want to do it. And then um, there's a there's also a query builder tool on the website. And then we have a, what we call an online visualization tool that enables you to pretty quickly construct plots and maps and graphs that 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 can indicate um, what's been reported for the timing of different phenomenon. Um, for different species, either you know across space, across a region, or um, through time, or even being able to compare across species and, and across locations, and that's kind of nice because you can whip those plots up really pretty quickly without ever actually having to touch the data. Um, it, you know, you kind of mock it up with just uh, drop-down menus and and plot it up pretty quickly. So that that tool is really nice for first being able to <laughs> to see what we have data on, what folks have reported on, but then also um, yeah, what what are those data telling us? And who are the, you know, what is this data being used for? Oh, all sorts of cool stuff, actually. Tell um, me about it. Sure. So so the protocols are pretty rigorous. Um, our program is, we, we know this, we, we aren't shy about acknowledging that, you know, what we're asking folks to do is, is fairly demanding. We ask that you register a site, and then in the case of plants, you pick individuals, and in the case of animals, you come up with a list of animals you want to watch for, and then you make those repeated observations, ideally at least once a week and maybe even more regularly when things are changing, and then ideally, too, you stick with it for <laughs> year after year. Um, mm -hmm. Not everybody is, you know, cut out for that kind of commitment, but um, some folks are, and honestly, uh, it, is, it is enjoyable. I love getting out there because to make my observations because in, invariably I see something that I would not have taken the time to slow down and notice otherwise. Um, because the data, the, the, the reason why the program is kind of demanding is because we want to generate data that are of sufficient rigor and quality that they can be used by scientists in fundamental basic discoveries and better understanding um, what's going on across the nation and among species and how it's changing. And then also by decision makers, so natural resource managers um, and a whole lot of others too. So we we try hard to keep track of all the different ways that the data are used, and educators too. I should not forget that educators use this quite a bit. Um, we try to keep track of all these different uses, but it's it's increasingly becoming more challenging because there's new um, new things being discovered <clears throat> and documented every day. Um, some of the most recent scientific uses of the of the data that have been just so cool. One of one of the one of the ones that I that I really like is so one of the things that we 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 know we know and we continue to document is that with increasing temperatures, springtime plant and animal activity is becoming increasingly earlier in the year. Um, it's of course not a perfect trend because there's variability from year to year but there's a general advancement toward earlier activity. <clears throat> a lot of plants in the springtime require not only warmth to get 
going to basically start leafing out and, and, and putting on opening their flowers, they also require for the day to be a particular number of, of hours of daylight. And so there's, it's been predicted that there, there is a limitation to how much um, leaf out and flowering can advance because once we start running up against that, that limitation of day length where the days are becoming, are, are not yet long enough, even if it's warm enough to trigger activity, they won't advance any further. What's cool is that a researcher recently recognized, well, guess what? We actually are dumping all sorts of artificial light into the environment by keeping our porch lights on and just with street lights. And so maybe could that have a counteracting effect on that day length limitation, allowing oh, no, we can't, we can't to... say that, Teresa, because that's, that's going to mean that, like, urban development has a positive thing. Oh, I'm saying all sorts of offending <laughs> things. I know this. It's okay. It's, I'm comfortable with that. But they, the researcher used the observations of, of, of leaf out and flowering that have been contributing, contributed to Nature's Notebook and documented that very thing, that guess what? If you have, um, in, in locations that, are, that uh, have more concentrated artificial light, so more urban areas, yes, indeed, we're seeing even more advancement in, in the start of spring activity than in rural areas, suggesting that, guess what, <laughs> yes, things can keep advancing um, as temperatures continue to increase. What are some of the, like, you know, you know, we, I guess we talked about that artificial light being sort of a positive thing and a negative thing. Um, uh -huh. What are other, you know, are there positives and negatives to the changing of when plants are, um, you know, starting to flower or when they go into fruit. And sure. what are those, you know, two sides of that coin? Yeah, there's so much there. I could literally talk all day about all the different <laughs> kinds of discoveries that are being made with these data and how much opportunity there is because for every question that somebody pursues, a thousand more pop up. Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the downsides is, as with these, with increasing temperatures and with increasing con um, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, one of the reasons why we're increasing, um, experiencing increasing temperatures globally, those to to oversimplify, those two ingredients together are kind of like fertilizer for plants. And so, in addition to seeing um, uh, plants leafing out and flowering earlier in the year. In some cases, they're growing bigger and more, more robust with this longer growing season. And that's not necessarily bad. One upside of that is greater carbon sequestration, carbon being tied up in that plant biomass. But another negative is the amount of pollen that they are generating. The pollen season itself is about 20 days longer on average in the U.S. than it was back in the 1990s. And in general, we're generating, those plants are pumping out about 20% more pollen than they did back 30 years ago. Hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> there, are, there are definite pros and cons. Um, in addition, it's a total oversimplification to say that all plants are, early, are, are advancing their activity earlier in the spring and later in the fall. It's, it's a total mixed bag. And a consequence of that is that there are winners and losers. Um, species that are able to advance more dramatically in response to changing climate conditions generally are increasing in abundance on the landscape. And the species that are not responding as much, we are starting to see declines in their abundance. Um, 
there was a cool study, oh gosh, probably about 15 years ago now, that documented um, what they what the researchers did was look at, you may have heard of this, it's pretty famous, Henry David Thoreau, when he was out at Walden Pond, documented phonology, basically. He collected really rigorous records of what was mm-hmm. What, what was doing what, what, when, um, back in the 1850s. And then researchers based at Boston University have subsequently resampled that and have, you know, reconstructed what he did and then compared what their findings were back to his from 150 years ago. And a lot has changed, but not everything has changed. Some things have advanced by like six, five or six weeks and other things haven't changed at all. And the plants that really haven't change their timing they can't even be found there anymore they've lost a whole lot of orchids and um, I think lilies and some other species that were really pretty common back in Thoreau's time can't even be found now because they just they they aren't keeping with the times literally yeah they weren't able to adapt fast enough to that changing temperature and yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that that's right near where I'm from. I'm originally from Lowell, so Walden Pond. Is oh, okay. Familiar. Place. You're in a hotbed. You are in a hotbed of phonology activity, actually. Yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. there's a lot of enthusiasm for this topic and plants in general up in that part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, this this past season, you know, over the past 2 years at least, our you know, fall season has been very warm. Um, you know, today it's probably 46, which is wow. above average wow. for what it should be right yeah. now. But up until two weeks ago, it was 65, 70 here. And so goldenrod had been flowering. Um, wow. Herb, Herb Robert, wild geraniums were out in the woods flowering. Um, so I've been, you know, and then with, I've been doing a lot of seed collections this season. So, cool. you know, other than other than just paying attention to like flowering times, I've been paying attention to when seeds are ready. Um, oh, good. Yes. I've been, I've been trying to collect them when they're, you know, when they're available and, and I know they'll, they'll germinate. So I've been, you know, taking different seed heads apart at different times of the season. And one of the things that I thought about was like we have some late flowering asters um, and some of them, I don't know if you know, it almost seems like if we get a a frost too early, um, a lot of those seeds would never develop properly. And so there's a lot of like aborted seed, seeds there. Um, yeah. And so it's just interesting to like pay attention to that part of the the nature equation to find out when things will be viable. Because, you know, most people just think, oh, seeds are seeds. You know, but the plant really tells you when they're ready, whether it opens at the hitches and has the seeds inside it, or um, like in the asters, they turn into like that little tuft, you know, right. they get dispersed. Um, so it, it makes me wonder, like, which plants are going to be more adaptable to, um, you know, a warming trend that we have. But our winters are also getting, it seems like they're colder, but we also have less. Um, snowpack, which is an important part of our ecosystem mm-hmm. up here um, for sugar maples and stuff. And we have a lot of, you know, insect infestations that will come in. Like I've seen whole, you know, hillsides of oak just wiped out by tent caterpillars. Um, and then we have like a whole host of invasive things that are happening. So, you know, part of that warming trend and, um, you know, the invasive plants are able to really, you know, capitalize on that. 
and yeah. extend their growing season even longer. Um, but, you know, I, there's a lot of ambigu- ambiguity in what we could, you know, like, where does this all lead to? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're obviously living in a changing environment globally. Um, and so, you know, if we ultimately, I think we're, we're probably going to lose a lot of sensitive species that can adapt, like you said. And then some of these other common species and invasives are going to be the ones that, you know, sort of survive this. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what, what, what are your feelings on what we're going to be looking at in 30 years? Like, do, you, yeah. do they project the data at all to see, you know, what that, what the potential is or, um, you know, that, that is definitely a way that the observations that are coming in through nature's notebook can be used. Um, there's so much dimensionality to it. You know, you touched on so many different, different ways in which <laughs> different, I guess, different factors that, that are at play here. And, and there's so much uncertainty. It's true. Um, yeah. Uh, cold matters <laughs> chill ch- winter chill is important to a lot of species and and has a governing effect on when um springtime activity occurs but that's not true for all species so changing in the changing in the wintertime conditions can definitely have impacts later in the year and and for particular species persistence um Drought in the summer definitely can play a role um I know some locations i know i th- I think I've heard that fall color was really quite spectacular in most of the U.S., but I know there was definitely concerns in different parts because summertime drought can um, mm-hmm. speed up the, the, the timing of fall and definitely have a real detrimental impact on the, the colors and how spectacular they are because the plants just don't have the, the resources available to to make that happen mm-hmm. um, when they're drought stressed. Um and yes, you're right too about invasive species. You know, the more the more stressed ecosystems are, the more their defenses are down and leaving them vulnerable to either um attack by insects or pathogens or um just vulnerable by to invasion by by species that that are, you know, more built for for under different conditions. And so, yeah, we're definitely contending with with all of those things. Um What's cool about the data that folks are contributing to Nature's Notebook is that in a lot of cases, there isn't a single question that that somebody has phrased that's driving the collection of those observations. Um, in some cases, folks do have a very targeted question, and um, we can help mobilize observers to collect observations to support addressing their question. But we have a ton of observers that are contributing observations simply because they see the value in it and because they love the activity and they love looking at plants um, and they may have a relationship with others that is, that is encouraging them to do so. And it's, it's, it's helping generate this pool of data. We now have over well over 30 million records that folks have contributed that researchers can tap into to ask and answer you know, a whole host of questions that they may have up their sleeves or that they may be able to dream up. And so, like you suggested, kind of trying to project forward what, what, how different species may respond um, to different changes in conditions, 
um, is the kind of thing that, that can be asked and hopefully answered <laughs> with these observations. And so um, that part's exciting to me. And and it really is. It's it's so exciting and gratifying to see what researchers do do because a lot of them work pretty independently. Um, it's kind of rare for us to even know when somebody is downloading the data and doing something with it. Oftentimes we don't know what they did until the paper is published and then I discover it and then I read it and think, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I'm so excited you did this. So, um, and so, you know, it makes me even more enthusiastic to come back to the observers um, share it back. We do a lot to try and share back with our program participants um, how their observations are being used and what's been found and documented um, with the hopes that it keeps them as energized and enthusiastic and um, engaged as well because without without the observers and their activity and their data coming in, we don't have anything to offer to folks that might want to use it actually. In the, I, I know you said that you know, if somebody wanted to do this, it's a it's a pretty rigorous um, practice to get involved in. And then, you know, it probably makes sense for somebody to have that plant close to them so that they can visit it once a week. So their yeah. local vicinity. Um, what, you know, and I, I'm just sort of linking this to plant ID books where, um, you know, when you look through a, a simpler form of an ID book and they have line drawings in there, you know, that's an average of um, a lot of different plants. You know, they, yeah. they condense it down into one plant. And so if, you know, for Nature's Notebook, if we're looking at one individual, which I imagine are those 30 million records or those individual 30 million individual plants? Oh, no. So a record is every time that someone goes out and answers a question regarding what they're seeing on an individual. And so oh, okay. I have a desert willow tree in my backyard that I've been observing for a long time. And every time I come out to it, I'm confronted with about 10 questions. And they are, do you see young, young leaves? Do you see fully extended, expanded leaves? Do you see flowers? Every time I answer one of those questions, that's a record. Gotcha. Um, so what is the the risk in, you know, doing that? And what percentage of like, um, what percentage of the information do you think is like genetic differences? Mm, yeah, so that would be a great outstanding question for <laughs> somebody <laughs> analyzing the data, the data to try to address. You know, we don't, we obviously can't address that directly because we don't have samples of the plants to be able mm -hmm. to do any sort of genetic analysis with. You know, though we have partnered with, again, with researchers in, um, I can think of one case in particular where some folks were very interested in, in trying to answer a very similar question to what you just phrased for dogwoods, where they looked at the timing of flowering in um, dogwoods in the southeast as documented by observers in our database. And they found some individual plants where it looked like people were reporting what seemed like outliers to plants flowering either much earlier or much later than the individuals in the surrounding vicinity and then they wanted to know is this because they are genetically really distinct or not and so we did follow up with those observers to the best of our abilities to track them back down because a lot of them had participated back in you know 2014 and then we heard nothing since mm -hmm. it's tricky people move around and disappear and close their email accounts but for the folks that we could track down we requested that they send us a leaf sample 
and in some cases they did, and the researchers did undertake some genetic analysis. The results are not yet finalized. I know that that, that project is still taking place, but I guess that's a good illustration of the fact that we can help facilitate um, not only asking folks, helping folks, you know, dream up those kinds of questions, but hopefully help get the information that they need to answer them as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So are you suggesting that that, that dogwood might be a, a different species? So in this particular case, they were working with, I think, they were all looking at Appalachian Spring dogwood. Okay. You know, I'm sorry. I don't remember the particulars well enough. Oh, it's okay. I, w I was it's, just curious if, you know, you know, sometimes species are distinguished just by their flowering time. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if, you know, that, that would be the case where somebody found this thing and it was interesting enough in flowering, you know, out of the normal cycle of the, the other species that it that was thought to be. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, could that potentially lead to new species of plants being found? I don't think that's what's going on here, but I would have to follow back up with the researchers to know for positive. Um, yeah, I don't I, it's okay. remember the specifics. <laughs> um, I did observe a dogwood, I think it's gray dogwood, um, flowering in September, um, wow. which is out of season, yeah. that, way out of season. Um, you know, when I, when I see things like that, I sort of just assume that, you know, it's uh, environmental, the environmental conditions are right, and mm -hmm. it's getting confused about what season it is. Um, so it's, yeah. not, it's not really playing by the rules, you know, it's getting, it's warm enough and the light, light might be similar enough to the springtime that it's going to try to flower again. Um, but the pollinators were liking it. So like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a jarring thing to see, but then you're like, oh, well, I guess, you know, I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, right. <laughs> even yeah, though, like even though said, they seem a... confused, but. Yeah. Well, I was just going to kind of address, because I wondered if, <clears throat> as folks were listening to this conversation, if they might wonder, could it be local site-level conditions that would cause plants to behave notably differently? For example, and especially since we ask folks to make observations of plants that are really local to them, you know, it could be in their yard, and if it's in their yard, it may receive supplemental watering or fertilizer or be extra shaded or extra exposed, and could those kinds of factors, you know, really throw things off? And the answer is yes, they could. And so we do ask when folks register their plants to help us know a bit more about the conditions under which they're being kept alive. You know, was it a planted plant or did it occur there on its own? Um, is it is it, you know, real close to a building and thereby receiving a lot of extra shade and shelter, or is it out in the middle of a forest? Um, and so that information, that ancillary information is available to help kind of disentangle um, different uh, responses that, that you might be seeing in their phenology. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with iNaturalist. Mm-hmm. And so is there, you know, I sort, I use iNaturalist as a, a record-keeping device. So I, get, I just get to, I think it's cool to be able to look at a map before I observe plants. And then I use that database, um, you know, if I'm going anywhere uh, outside of my normal area, I'll see what's there, I'll see what's in flower. So I sort of know what to expect when I show up. 
Yeah. Um, and so that, I'm, I don't know, it used to be pretty terrible, the ID uh, feature there. It used to not really ID things, but it got better, and I think it got better over time just through users um, putting in information and then people that blockchain sort of double-checking uh-huh. of IDs. Um, so I think it's a really cool tool. It doesn't sound as, um, you know, the the problem with iNaturalist is that there's no no one giving lessons on what pictures to take. Um, right. And they obviously don't, you know, record as much information as it sounds like is on the uh, Nature's Notebook form to fill out. Um I wonder if there's, you know, do you guys ever communicate with iNaturalist or try to figure out how to get those? seems like there's a lot of information there um, and a lot of stuff to glean off of, you know, just that citizen science approach. Um, and it looks like there's a ton of people interested in taking pictures of plants and animals and all that stuff um, just based on the number of observations in that, that program. Um I wonder if they could, you know, sort of up their game like you guys have and, like, require certain things, you know, maybe even, like, a special program or, like, you know, integrate that somehow in order to, like, get all that information together. Um, And I wonder if that would, like, you know, improve the picture that is getting painted. Definitely. So I really appreciate iNaturalist because it is – it really is such a great resource for identifying what you're looking at. and Definitely, that's a bit of a weak spot for our program because we don't offer that kind of support. Um, We offer extensive support for helping folks evaluate whether they are seeing open flowers or ripe fruits or even what a breaking leaf bud looks like. But we kind of have to rely on observers to be able to identify on their own the species that they're making observations Mm -hmm. on. So we do recommend (laughs) that that iNaturalist can be a great resource for helping getting, getting over that initial hurdle. Um, you are 100% right that so many of those photos have inherently embedded in them phenology information. It is a status record. Every time you're taking an, um, a photo of a, of a plant, um, you have inherent information there on are there leaves on it? Are there fully expanded leaves? Are there flowers? Are there open flowers? And so what is cool is we have a funded project um, to work collaboratively to extract um, it, that information and, and combine it with ours. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, there was, we were just very recently awarded a grant from the National Science Foundation that is going to enable extracting phenology information from iNaturalist, and I have no idea how many millions of records they have, but it's a lot. Yeah. As well as phenology information from herbarium specimens, So herbarium specimens are are pieces of plants that people collect and press um, and document the location and the the date on which they were collected. Those also are a snapshot of what was happening um, on a plant on a particular date. So we're also um, getting that information. Um, And then there are phenology networks like ours in a lot of other countries, and there hasn't yet really been an overt effort to try to make all those data that are collected in different ways readily accessible and combined. And so this effort, which is a multi-year grant, is 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 intended to do that very thing, is is um make all of those data accessible um from a single endpoint 
And with all of the protocols kind of mushed together, basically, <laughs> we're leveraging something called an ontology, which is a shared vocabulary that, that enables you to combine crosswalk and combine data that are collected following different kinds of protocols um, and kind of boil it down to the, to the least common denomin denominator. Um, mm -hmm. And so in a couple of years, <laughs> we'll go from having 30 million records to orders of magnitude greater than that. And it will be not just the, the U.S., it'll be global coverage. And so, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Is that going to be accessible through the National Phrenology Network? Um, I am not certain what like the separate? ultimate home. It, right now, the project is being led out of Louisiana State University. Linkages to it on the NPN's website, absolutely, if we're not the ultimate host. Is there, you know, so we talked about the orchid, like Thoreau's orchid um, not being present at all. Are there particular species or is there a list of particular species that the NPN is um, targeting on a yearly basis that they, like, is there a, a list of species yeah. that they need people to sign up for that they're kind of, they're kind of focusing attention on? That's an excellent question. So, yeah, right now we have a, over 1,600 different plant and animal taxa available that you can track. But you're right, we do have um, several short lists of, of, of species that are targeted through what we call campaigns that have been identified either because a researcher has a particular research question that they're trying to answer or because there is a management application that having more information would be useful to support. And so, for example, our Nectar Connectors campaign focuses on, I think it's a couple dozen species of flowering plants with, um, that, are, that are important for migratory pollinators because there is such an effort, such a big push to try to understand what the status of the monarchs are and um, really it has so much to do with food, food resource availability um, as they are making their their migrations north and south. And so um, so you can observe those, those particular species that the emphasis specifically is on when, whether you see, whether and when you see flowers and open flowers. Um, there's another campaign localized mostly along the Mississippi River corridor called Mayfly Watch, where we invite folks to track when they see mayflies emerge, because that actually is, is a pretty big phenomenon that's that you know all the mayflies hatch at the same time pretty much and you end up with mounds of them swarming around gas stations and on bridges and managers use that information to try to figure out when to turn off lights to kind of it, they actually can cause traffic accidents because they get the roads all slick and the bridges slick it's gross um <laughs> it, back to plants though back to plants um <clears throat> we have uh, a a green wave campaign which has emphasis specifically on the timing of um, leaf, leaf out in the spring and leaf color change in the fall for common overstory trees. But we actually have pivoted that, that campaign just a little to also put more focus on the timing of flowering in trees, and especially in trees where the flowers are not so obvious, like maples and oaks, and because those guys are so responsible for the pollen that create allergies for us. And so we've also been trying to figure out how well can folks' observations of, of um, flowering in wind-pollinated species indicate the pollen concentrations that irritate our allergies and asthma? 
So you can learn about all of the different species that you can track through Nature's Notebook, as well as those campaigns and the species associated with those campaigns um, on our website. And the Nature's Notebook website is naturesnotebook.org. And so, you know, I would love to get involved in the Nature's Notebook observation, um, you know, be an observer for you guys. That would be fantastic. Uh, so We'd love that. <laughs> so how would, you know, is it open to anybody? Can you just tell me briefly how to get, how to do that? And I'll, I'll learn with everyone else right now. And then Absolutely, uh, yes. So the best way, really, is to download the Nature's Notebook app. Um, and so you just go to the iPhone store or the Google Play store and search for Nature's Notebook. And hopefully it's the first thing that pops up. And go ahead and install that. And it will walk you through the steps of, the first step you'll be confronted with is to create your own profile or account. Um, and all you need for that is a valid email. And then once you've done that, it will walk you through establishing a site. And then prompt, it will prompt you to register either individual plants or create an animal checklist. And at that point, you really are, again, challenged to be able to identify some plants. So we recommend starting small, picking something that, again, is um, very accessible to you, like, and then, and that something, it, uh, that it be something that you can, that you feel confident in the, uh, identification of it. And there will be a little bit of a learning curve as you kind of learn to identify what the different phenophases look like. But once you do know what you're looking for, it can go very quickly. Making observations can be, you know, you can rip through it in well under a minute. Um, yeah. And then, as you get more comfortable with it, you can easily add additional plants um, through that through the app. And so it would really be you guys are really looking for like if I have a trail that runs out into the woods behind my house, like every time I walk on that trail. Ooh, yeah, like, that would be ideal. Recording, yeah, recording those those plants that are flowering, whatever. Um, yeah, whatever part and of their life stage they're in. Exactly. Yes. We're really interested in hearing the no's just as much as we are in hearing the yeses. So I, I realize that you, it's a, we're heading into the winter season. There will be an awful lot of no's and you don't need to feel compelled to make regular observations every single week through January and February and March when it's you're buried under feet of snow. You can take a break then for sure. But um, it really is fantastic to get some no's logged in there before things start happening in the spring because that enables somebody who's using the data to know with precision when something actually started. Yeah. If we only yeah. have the first time, if, if, if an observer, if you only um, tell us, yes, I see this thing on this day, that's very helpful for sure. That's very helpful. But we can't conclude that that was the first day that it actually happened. Um, we only actually can know with some precision when the thing happened, when, when we went from not having open flowers to having open flowers, if we know when you last said, no, I don't see open flowers. And so, therefore, it's maybe less exciting to say no, but it is very valuable for somebody using that information at the end of, at the end of it. What else, what else can we say about the uh, National Phenology Network? Is there any other, any other plugs you want to make? Sure. So, um, so we welcome everybody to participate as individuals, for sure. And as soon as you sign up, you are also, um, I, I don't know if it's automatically, I think you're invited to um, receive our newsletter that is intended for observers, and that's a really great way 
to keep um, in the loop on any changes and updates that we make to the to the system, either the app or the, the infrastructure online, um, as well as opportunities like webinars. We do webinars pretty regularly that report back out how the data are being used and what discoveries are being made. And then also, we definitely are encouraging all the time what we call local phonology programs to become established. And what that is, is groups of folks that are participating together in tracking phonology. And so oftentimes, local phonology programs are folks that are already collectively working together for some other reason, like either a master gardener chapter, or maybe a friends group at a national wildlife refuge, or volunteers or docents at a nature center, or even students in a class. Um, so those folks are already kind of affiliated in some way, and then they choose to adopt tracking phonology as, as a group. And so how that works typically is that they are, we, we help them. This is something that, that we, we have to have some involvement in getting that set up and in, um, infrastructure side, um, because typically how it works is folks register plants at a site, and in the case where it's associated with a facility like a nature center, it's kind of obvious. It's the plants at that nature center. Um, yeah. And then anybody who's involved in that program is joins that group and is able to make observations on those same plants. And so it's that's why we have to be involved, is it's a little bit of a, a database magic to be able to make it possible for multiple people to make observations on the same individual plants and have them all be connected in the database. Um, but that is a really cool uh, way to participate because you're you're not just out there on your own. Some folks, that's what they prefer. But in other cases, folks really appreciate being able to kind of um, share that, the responsibility. You know, in, in a yeah. lot of cases, folks organize where I'll observe on Tuesdays, you observe on Thursdays, we all get together on Saturdays and see what we saw. <laughs> um, and in some cases, groups have gotten really enthusiastic about this. Um, I know that a, a group out at Arnold Arboretum there at Harvard University um, would get together on a monthly basis and do things like make pancakes with acorn flour from the trees that they were observing and um, had like plant-themed art and jewelry that they were making. And it, it was just so cool to hear about how these these groups get so enthusiastic around, and I mean, plants are just a fun thing to get enthusiastic around anyway. So, yeah. um, so we have a, an awful lot of resources to be able to support um, groups, local phonology programs um, in, in getting going and then sustaining activity too. So definitely want to put that out there because I think that's kind of a unique feature of our yeah. citizen science program um, and definitely something that we're we're kind of proud of. And the reason really why we put so much emphasis on it is because, again, we know that building a long-term data set um, at a site is a lot to ask of any one person. Um, and the individuals that, that really stick with it for the long term are, are special and few and far between. And that's okay. I'm not one of those <laughs> either. Um, but when yeah. you're part of a group, it tends to have more momentum, and we definitely see that the plants that are under, under observation by groups of folks tend to receive more frequent observations, which is good, because then you have more precision around identifying when things start and end, and they tend to be under observation for longer duration than plants under observation by individual folks. 
So it's definitely a good thing from the data, the, uh, the ultimate data side of things too. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the longest running, maybe it's the longest running group, uh, citizen science data collection is Christmas bird count. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which has been going on for a long time. And I, I was just thinking about that today, and I was kind of jealous that, you know, there isn't like a plant count, <laughs> you know, at some <laughs> point that, that happens because there's so many, you know, it, it's happened twice or three times in the past year that in Vermont alone, they've refound what they thought to be extinct plants in the state. Wow. Um, wow. So there's, you know, there's like, and I'm going to, I'm going to find some in the next couple of years. I know that I am. I'm, I'm going to do a little research to find them, but um, there's, you know, I'm almost a hundred percent confident that there's a whole lot of plants out there that we're just not observing because they're either on private property. No one's ever done a survey of that property. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, they're existing out there and I get kind of jealous about the Christmas bird count because, they, you know, they're like, oh, we found this weird thing that we've never seen here before. And it just seems like it happens all the time. And, you know, obviously <laughs> plants don't move like birds do. So, um, you know, yeah. birds are a little bit more visible and, you know, around and they travel a lot more. Um, and plants are very specific to a time. You know, you have to be there in some cases, right, you know, when it's flowering or, you know, maybe it doesn't show up for every every four years or something that plant comes above the ground. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think there's a lot of work and, you know, room uh, for people to do, you know, stuff like that, surveys. Um, you know, it sounds like you guys are doing something really cool. Um, so I will definitely get involved and uh, be an observer for you all. I have some uh, – I really enjoy looking at plants. So for me, you know, I look at the same plant all year long. Anyway. Um, so I'll That's awesome. Filtering that information into your – your database there and hopefully it helps that yes it would and we welcome feedback too you know like for example if there are species you wish to observe that are not on the list um make us a compelling argument and we can look into getting it added or okay. or i don't know if this makes sense if if you have podcast listeners who would like to be part of a local phenology program we can organize we can organize groups around um something other than a, a, a spatial location or facility as well. Um, and so there could be a Plants Are People to podcast local phenology oh, cool. program um, that brings folks together in that way, you know, where you are the crystallizing, um, yeah. the, catalyst, the catalyst for for that group. So that's something we could explore and, and discuss as well. You know, one of our biggest challenges that we face is connecting with potential participant, just getting the word out. It's still true that nine times out of 10, I encounter somebody and I say, the, they, what do you do for your job? And I tell them and they're like, what's phenology? That's the very first yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. So I usually don't lead with, I work for the phenology network. <laughs> um, I say, I study plants and when they do stuff seasonally. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, even um, just, just getting on folks' radar is our biggest challenge, recruiting recruiting new folks, um, and then, of course, retaining to turnover is a constant challenge as well. And so any way that we can connect and, and take advantage of established channels for where folks are coalescing, like, say, around your podcast, I would love to be able to do that. And so we can keep exploring that. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so we're getting up on an hour. I have one final question for you. It's not a hard sure. one. 
Okay. Um, so you have, uh, so you're originally from Michigan mm-hmm. and you live in Arizona now. Uh-huh. So what are your, what, what's your favorite plant? If you could pick one from Michigan and then from Arizona. Oh, uh, I am very partial to Asclepius. I love uh-huh. milkweed. So that's kind of a spatial because they're all over the place. <laughs> um, but they're some of my favorite, honestly. Um, although, can I have more than one? <laughs> oh, <laughs> because sure. when I lived in Michigan, when I lived in Michigan, I loved sweet gum and horse chestnut and tulip tree. All of those trees are special just for various reasons. I love what sweet gum looks like when the fall leaves change color because they oh, have yeah. that like mottled effect and I love their leaves. And then I just love horse chestnut flowers and, and tulip tree flowers. They're so pretty. Um, out here in Arizona, it's harder because everything's prickly. <laughs> Everything, it's, it's, and you know what? I was so silly too. When I lived in Michigan, I was gifted the three volume set Michigan Flora by Edward Voss. And I felt like, okay, I know plants. If I can, you know, absorb these three volumes, I'll know Michigan plants. And I didn't know them all, but I, I got to know, you know, a good chunk probably at least in the lower peninsula where, where I was from. So when I moved out here to Arizona, I asked my PhD advisor, like, what's the compendium for Arizona plants? And he just stared at me. He was like, what? (laughs) He said, have you noticed the elevation, um, you know, the the different elevations and the different, like, latitude we have here? There's no such thing as that. There's so many plants here. And so, so, (laughs) um, but, but that said, I guess that I really like hedgehog cactus which is a, most of the cacti that we have here have really spectacular flowers, but a lot of them are yellow or orange, but the hedgehog cactus has really pretty red flowers and, um, and they're really, they just really stand out. So that when I was, I went down to uh, New Mexico in in the spring of last year and I, I tried to get out to Arizona to go see um, the saguaros in bloom. Uh Uh-huh. And, I didn't make it that far. It was. It seemed like New Mexico was on fire the entire time. I yeah, was there. yeah, probably true. Um, and so I, the the most, the species that I was most impressed with were the uh, sumac species in the desert. Um, the which? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Sumacs. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, in in the Northeast, I'm used to seeing sumacs as trees, really. Um, yeah. You know, with big. Uh, you know, leaves, leaflets on mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. in the desert, they were all reduced leaves, almost looked like, a, you know, yeah. gooseberry leaves or something. And then they were all coated in this, like, you know, it almost looked yes. like crystallized snow or sugar all over the leaves. Yeah. Um, we have, it's funny, I'm staring at one right now in my backyard. We have an, it's an invasive roof um, that is, it's such a messy tree. They, they, they generate millions of seeds, so they're popping up all over the yard. And yeah, they exude this like sticky, slime, oily stuff that just is, it's such a messy plant. <laughs> I don't love them, honestly, um, because of all the mess that, you know, they generate the seeds and the flowers and the, the sticky sap stuff. And um, But yeah, they look very different. My, I was sharing that with my mom that, that it's a sumac, and she looked at it and said, what? It doesn't look anything <laughs> like what sumac yeah. is supposed to look like. Yeah, they're cool. Um, well, Teresa, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Um, Thank you. It's been a I joy. Love, yeah, I, I learned a lot today, and I'm excited to, you know, help you guys um, do that stuff. And hopefully I can wrangle some other people in with the podcast. And you know, Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm serious about however we can sustain it. You know, if, if once you get in there, you have questions, definitely don't hesitate to ask. And then if you see opportunity to kind of, I don't know, engage folks in this way, we would definitely be open to figuring out the best fit um, for making okay. that happen. Cool. That's great. Cool. All right. Thank All right, you. Sure, it was so, really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank you so you much. You too. Take care.